Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. To celebrate the launch of our new login and feed management system, we are offering membership for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content from all of our podcasts, an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There's no need to enter a promo code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you very much. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. We've got the old gang gathered here around the stove to talk about what's going on in the world. It's a virtual stove because it's hot out there. It's summertime. We include in that gang the not-so-old Rosa Brooks, who is a professor at Georgetown Law School and the associate dean for, what is it these days now, Rosa? Institutions and stuff stuff and and appetizers. Yeah. So, (laughs) uh, hi, Rosa. How are you? Hi, David. We also have with us David Sanger of the New York Times. How are you doing, David? Good, good. Good to be with you. And we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing, Ed? Great, thank you. Now, Ed, you were just in Europe for a while. And um, do you learn anything that you want to share with us? Yeah, I was in Poland um, for a week and then at a conference in Helsinki. And it was for book research reasons, as I probably told you, I'm doing a biography of Big Brzezinski, who was raised in Poland. But it happened to coincide with the NATO summit in Madrid, the sort of fairly Churchillian statements coming out of it, including by Biden about we'll pay any price, including high, higher gas prices. And Poland is, of course, on the front line, having until very recently been, you know, a pariah, not a pariah, but a sort of almost pariah twinned with Hungary, is now enjoying this newfound status as a, a frontline country that's, I think, taken more refugees than everywhere else combined. And it's an extraordinary time to be there because, I mean, Warsaw is this sort of buzzing um, city. It was also a pretty extraordinary time to be in Helsinki because it's, I was there the day that they were admitted or that their application was admitted for for NATO. Turkey's veto was uh, supposedly lifted, although you're never quite sure with Erdogan. So, you know, it's all it's all happening in that part of, of Europe. The only place I didn't go was Madrid. Sounds like you were at a happening place at a happening time. David, did, looking at what happened at the NATO summit, it seemed of enormous consequence and did not get a ton of coverage here in the U.S. Well, I think it was of consequence, David, for two or three reasons. The first is NATO did what it had been expected to do, which was 
for the first time in its new strategic concept, define Russia as one of its enduring challenges without calling it an adversary. The idea, which had been hatched, of course, before the invasion of uh, Ukraine, was to begin to shift NATO, like the United States, to think about Asia, the pivot, all of that. The reality was that by the time it came, the uh, members of NATO could think about nothing except Ukraine, which has had the wonder of unifying them, but on the other hand, is absorbing all of their resources, the arms, the support for Ukraine, and so forth. So while they were willing to give lip service to paying attention to China and its role, there wasn't a whole lot of evidence that they were actually willing to do much in the Pacific because their feelings so stretched in the arena for which NATO was initially conceived. The second thing that made it somewhat remarkable was the great tone of unity that continued about how we would pour arms and support to the Ukrainians for as long as it took. But just behind the scenes on that, I think there were the first doubts for the United States. There are many who believe that the amount that Congress has given them so far is basically kind of the end of the line. For the Europeans, I think there is a concern that as winter approaches and they're beginning to think about their gas supplies and the continued high cost of fuel, the enthusiasm will wane, particularly among the Western Europeans, not along those in the front line. And I'd say lastly, that the third thing that made this entire enterprise notable was that this was the moment for Biden to sort of cement his leadership for uh, the G7. And while I think clearly they, the members of the G7 and, and for NATO, were relieved to see that his investment in the alliances has paid off. I think there's a nervousness about whether he will run again, what they've learned during the January 6th hearings, his age, all of these things combine to make them wonder whether they will look back at Joe Biden as a blip in American history, a sort of return to normalcy that is not terribly long lasting or whether the country has truly turned away from the America firstism of uh, of Donald Trump. And they know they're not going to know that for two and a half years. Yeah, although there may be some clues along the way. You know, Rosa, when I think about this, we're foreign policy nerds. So we go, oh, wow, NATO has Finland and Sweden in it. NATO is more unified than ever. And the first time, you know, we had Asian leaders there because of this shift to China and America is well thought of. And frankly, those aspects of foreign policy that pertain to alliances look pretty good by and large. And there have been some significant successes. Last year, there were a lot of economic successes for the Biden administration. More jobs created in the last three Republican administrations added up record growth that hasn't been seen in decades major legislation passed, including some on a bipartisan basis, ranging from infrastructure to guns. And I saw a poll this morning, a Monmouth poll, that showed that something like 10 or 11% of Americans thought we were on the right track, and 88% thought we were on the wrong track as a country. So it seems like for all these successes, it's not resonating with the American people. 
You've just been out there in the middle of America for a month. How do you reckon that? I think there are two things going on there. Um, One is all the things you just mentioned, great as they are, don't don't compensate the sort of average American for the impact of incredibly high inflation. I think that that is hitting people directly in the wallet right now. And it's very scary. And none of the news is particularly good on that front. I don't, I don't think there's any pr- real sense that, oh, this is just a blip. It'll end in a couple months or something like that. I think there's a real sense of this is going to endure and, and people's wage increases are not keeping pace with inflation. So there is a real sense of, I think, anxiety, as, as you know, David, an astonishingly high percentage of Americans really do live paycheck to paycheck. You know, whenever they do these studies on how many Americans have you know, emergency funds or, or would be really wiped out if they had a small expense of you know, a few hundred dollars, uh, it's, an, it's an incredibly high number. So you know, the rise in inflation it really hits a lot of Americans quite hard and is forcing penny pinching and cutbacks uh, and is very painful for people. So I think that's one piece of it. You know, it doesn't really do people much good if there's job growth and so on and infrastructure bill if they're having trouble buying groceries uh, or getting gas for their car. I think the other thing that's going on that is specific to that kind of poll, the sort of satisfaction of the direction of the country, is that it, it, it doesn't just reflect people's sense of what has been happening, but it also reflects their sense of future threats. And I think that there is a very widespread sense of, of anxiety about what the future holds for the country. The majority of Americans, as you know, are not far right. The majority of Americans support abortion rights, for instance. The majority of Americans support tighter gun control. We have a Supreme Court that's out of step with the majority of Americans. And even more frightening, we have such threats to our the integrity of our electoral system that we cannot just say to ourselves, well, you know, majority's views on these things will ultimately prevail in terms of who ends up being elected to Congress, who ends up being in the Senate, who ends up becoming president. In fact, I think increasingly Americans feel, particularly the Democratic Party and many independents, feel very helpless because they feel that it, in fact, uh, you know, the, the Republican falsehood that the 2020 election was stolen may very well become a reality of future elections being stolen by the Republicans. And, you know, it doesn't make people feel positive or optimistic about the future of the country. And I think that's what you see reflected, a sense that we are going to face growing political conflict, uh, including violent conflict, that we are going to see increasingly uh, the country veering in a direction that most Americans don't want it to veer in, but, but fear they will have little ability to prevent. You know, David, on that last thought from Rosa, it's really remarkable if you think that in 2016, our concern was foreign interference with domestic elections. And for 2024 and maybe for 2022, our concern is domestic interference with domestic elections. It goes further than that. The Supreme Court agreed to take a case that could, in the next year, give the states enormous latitude in determining how they handle issues like electors and so forth. And that could make the big lie into something that is institutionalized or that that kind of partisan handling of election outcomes, something that we would have to come to expect. One of the things that strikes me about this is a kind of strange political dissonance that I don't know that I recall in my life. 
there's always been a sense of people's frustrations with Washington, whether it was gridlock or hyperpartisanship. But there is a sense at the moment, and I think this, this very right-leaning Supreme Court is part of that, where you can take issue after issue. Rosa began to do the list, but it can be abortion rights or gun rights or fairer taxes or education reform or fighting uh, climate change or et cetera, et cetera. And two-thirds or more of the American people support it. And yet you can't get any progress on any of those things because of the way the system is wired. So there's kind of political dissonance. Washington doesn't connect to the rest of the country. The majority of people don't have a lot of hope that their views are going to get translated into action. That's dysfunction. That's, that's a breakdown. That's not the way the system is supposed to work. But there's every sign that it's going to get worse. We are in the midst of a slow burn constitutional crisis in America. It's been going on for a number of years, but it's getting worse. The burn is getting uh, hotter. And it's extremely hard to see how we stop that, that we get into a different narrative. Francis Fukuyama talks about vetocracies. We have a situation where even when the Democrats are in majorities at the federal level, they can't get much done, except in very improbable circumstances of having more than 60 seats in the Senate, which is just not going to happen. And the system, as you say, is not, is not functioning the way it was designed. Well, it was designed to prevent, in Topville's words, the tyranny of the majority. It's now it had those famous checks and balances, but presumed a degree of cooperation on issues of overriding common interest. But what we have now, I think, is the tyranny of the minority. And that's, that's really crystallized in the Supreme Court. 6-3, you know, as far as the eye can see, even if the Democrats, a highly improbable situation, had unified control of Washington, of, of Congress and, and the White House for the next six years, that 6-3 split is unlikely to change, at best maybe 5-4. So this is something I think that justifies the, the fatalism you and Rosa have been talking about. We've got probably... 15, 20 years now of Trump's most enduring legacy, which is, a, I think, a theocratic Supreme Court. I mean, I don't want to indulge in too much hyperbole, but when I saw the, the other day somebody likening this Supreme Court's agenda, Clarence Thomas, of course, in one recent ruling saying we should look at Lawrence, we should look at Griswold, we should look at Obergefell, namely uh, anti-sodomy, contraception, and gay marriage, that is more, more akin to the Council of Guardians in Iran, the, the body of, of mullahs that oversees and basically is far, far senior to the elected representatives of the country than it is to legal systems and constitutional courts in other democracies. You go to Germany, go to Belgium, go to France and ask them the name, names of their senior judges on the constitutional court. Nobody has a clue. Nobody has a clue who they are because they're not that important. And because there isn't this massive sort of challenge to common sense thinking about the evolution of laws and constitutions to keep pace with time. Originalism is a, an original and unique American concept. So I understand this fatalism and I'm racking my brains to find how we break out of this narrative. 
I don't know other than improbably large democratic majorities that could happen. I would add, by the way, and, and Rosa as a constitutional law scholar, you know, can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the term for orig- you know, originalism is actually a crock of shit because the re- is the, isn't that the term? It's because because you know when you say the Second Amendment guarantees something, it doesn't begin to guarantee, or that in cases like abortion, we should be looking at history and tradition. When you, in one, you know, on, on the case of abortion, you're granting a sweeping power to the courts and the federal government. And on the case of gun rights, you're saying, no, this must be up to the states. When it's completely hypocritical, when you have justices citing judges who are known for presiding over witch trials, and, and in another instance, a judge, Clarence Thomas, suggesting that uh, the COVID vaccine came from aborted fetuses. There's nothing original. I mean, it's original thinking, but it has nothing to do with the original text of the Constitution. I would actually disagree with that. I think the problem is different. I think that it is possible to make an intellectually coherent originalist argument for reaching the results the Supreme Court has recently reached on abortion, on gun control, et cetera. I think the fundamental problem is not that they're interpreting constitutional text in a manner that is incoherent. I think the real problem is that we as Americans accept the notion that a document, you know, that was drafted and adopted, itself adopted in an extra legal fashion in 1787 by a tiny elite group of, you know, white male slaveholders should be binding on us today. I mean, that's the crazy thing, right? We treat our constitution like it's, you know, Moses came, got it out of the burning bush from God or something, like it's revealed truth. And we bizarrely view ourselves as permanently bound by by a text that, even if the framers were the wisest, the noblest, the best of the best of the best of the best, you know, it's nuts, right? Frankly, it is just nuts. I think that is the thing that is really crippling us right now. It's, it's, it's not the fact that we have justices who are interpreting this particular text in an incoherent way. Sometimes that's the problem, but I don't think that's the biggest problem we face. I think the biggest problem is that we are, we are stuck with a document with our whole political system insists that we've got these, you know, nine unelected people who interpret an ancient document that is in many ways largely irrelevant to the problems that we now face and that political theorists and political scientists today would say, boy, that doesn't make much sense as a way to organize a government. <laughs> you know, that's the big problem. David, does this mean that Joe Biden is politically doomed because A, this dysfunction will continue without any intervention you know, from him, nothing he can do about it. And that's going to breed frustration and make his admonition that, you know, people just vote and hope it changes seem weak and be some of the economic issues that he is being burdened with have nothing to do with actions that he's taken or very little to do with actions that he's taken. There is a, you know, the inflation is a global phenomenon. It's driven by a number of external factors and if there is one driving domestic factor, it's that domestic oil companies are choosing to go for very large profit margins, even as the price of gasoline fails. But the point is, 
it's hard to see how he can do something to transform that right track, wrong track perception, given, given these, these factors, David. So he doesn't have many options. And if he loses the house in the fall, which seems to be the likely scenario, he'll have even fewer options. His domestic agenda will essentially be over at that time, although his record of getting things through House and Senate together, even when he's had very narrow majorities in both, has been, you know, not what what many of his supporters hoped. I think, David, he's got three big challenges. I think you you touched on uh, a few of them. The biggest of those is economic, right? I mean, if people are paying $6 a gallon or even 5 they're really not interested in whether or not he believes that it's Putin's price in, uh, increase, as he has said, or it's the oil companies gouging consumers, as he tweeted over uh, the weekend, only to get shot back at by Jeff Bezos. But they only know what they're paying, and they're likely to blame him, or at least it'll become a big talking point for the Republicans. Second, if the high interest rates that we are in right now lead to a recession, even a mild one, he would have to show that the U.S. was coming out of that and back to growth by the time Election Day arrived. Thirdly, it depends on who he's running against and whether he is blamed more than the other guy. If it's Donald Trump, which I think is less likely than some of the other possibilities, then I think he can make a reasonable argument that Trump set up much of the disillusionment in the American institutions and undercut those institutions and attempted to undercut the election. If it is somebody who is a more moderate Republican, then I think he's got a much, much harder road to go. And then, of course, there are always the overriding issues of his age. He'd be 82 when inaugurated, 86 at the end of a second term. You know, before we started this podcast, I thought, this is the direction this conversation would head. And so I thought, well, we should call this podcast Ain't No Cure for the Summertime Blues. And, uh, you know, you certainly lived up to it so far. We've got 15 minutes to go. This is where we take a break. Uh, we say uh, hey, fo- saving the good news for the last 15 the, minutes. The last, yeah, the, the, the solutions will come in the last 15 minutes and also great stock tips. Um, this is also but, where we, we all sing Gershwin Summertime. Yeah, summertime. Exactly. I'll go get my wife, the singer, to come in to add to that. But uh, in any event, uh, for those of you who are not members, we say bye-bye. And uh, why don't you go become a member? It doesn't cost that much. And then you'll get all the benefit of of this, listening to Ed sing Summertime and other things. And uh, And you should do that. And then listen to the rest of the show. For those of you who are members, we'll be right back. <laughs> 